Good morning. There we are. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 13. I'll give you just a minute to do that. John chapter 13. Our text, as Jordan said a few minutes ago, will begin in verse 18. So John 13, 18 through 30, that's our text for this morning. As you're continuing to turn there, let me just give a little context for where this text falls in the whole Gospel of John. This whole series will take us quite a long time to march through. We've made it thus far. Started in chapter 1, now we're in 13. We had the life and ministry, most of it, of the Lord Jesus in all the preceding chapters. And here we are at, at, the, at a crucial turning point in Jesus' life. It's hard to overstate. The crucial turning point, maybe. Depends how you want to talk about it. But the life and ministry are over. This is Passover meal between Jesus and his disciples on the evening before the cross. So here we are at the very turning point of his life. And I'm going to pick up the text, pick up the reading of the text in verse 18. So John 13, verse 18. I do not speak to all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. Verse 21. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Jesus, pardon me, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately and it was night. Let's pray. Father, one of the most evil things that's ever happened begins in our text. One of the most wrath-inducing actions ever committed by anybody that you made happens here. The thing that stirs up righteous anger and wrath in the heart of a holy God in your heart. One of the worst things ever in this text. Something despicable, something abhorrent, something vile, something, as our culture has forgotten how to say, something evil 
happens here. And it was a part of your predetermined plan and foreknowledge. You've never been taken by surprise. The author of Lamentation said, who has spoken and it has come to pass that the Lord did not command it. Lord, I pray that you would pull back the veil, show us your glory, show us Jesus, the captain of our salvation in the hour of darkness, sovereign Lord, in weakness, in trouble, Lord of all. Show us his glory, Lord. Make us in awe of him. Cause tomorrow to look different because of the interaction we had with him now. Make us love him. Make us obey him. Make us wonder at him. Make us entrust ourselves to him when things are bad, when things really are evil around us. Make us entrust ourselves to the Lord Jesus. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Benedict Arnold, he was born in January 1740 in Norwich, Connecticut, not very far from Long Island, so way up there, at least for me, it's way up there. He was named after his great-grandfather who'd been one of the early governors of the colony of Rhode Island, so we're talking pre-Revolutionary War. Came from a wealthy family. He himself began an apothecary, or he was a pharmacist. And he did fairly well for himself, uh, coming from the family that he did and with the career that he had, but things, he, he got into a little bit of trouble financially because the British started enacting some legislation and some taxation, which you'll be familiar with, and it hurt his business. And of course, Arnold didn't like that very much. So when the war broke out, the Revolutionary War, he was on the side of the Americans, and he was passionately on the side of the Americans. He proved to be a devoted soldier. He was courageous, he was brave, and he was loyal. He served in the recapture of Boston, taking it back from the British, and he also served in the capture of Fort Ticonderoga. He was a part of a mission up to Canada, to Quebec, and the conditions were really harsh, and loyal, brave Arnold pressed on anyways. About 300 men turned back. They didn't want to go up into the Canada cold and snow. About 200 men actually lost their lives because of the conditions, but not Arnold. He was devoted. It was in Quebec when he got up there that he was injured. The bone of one of his legs was shattered to pieces. He carried that limp with him for the rest of his life. His other leg was inflicted with gout, severely painful, he risked his life, he suffered, he left his wife at home at the farm, so to speak, to go and serve the cause, he was loyal. And in the middle of all that, he got a lot of criticism. He was critiqued, he felt snubbed, it was public criticism, he didn't get certain, kind, certain promotions in the military, he wasn't able to climb the ladder in the way that he thought he deserved and he was criticized and it didn't sit well with him. He also married a young lady after the death of his first wife. The new wife was Peggy Shippen. She was a British loyalist, so you see there's a conflict there. American military officer marrying a British loyalist. 
And it's really not clear, actually, with the historians, what, what happened, how his loyalty began to wane. Might have been that he felt snubbed and criticized, might have been the British loyalist wife, Peggy Shippen, or some other reason, we don't know, but he did become a traitor. He began secret communications with the British, even offered to let them come and take over the fort that he had been assigned, West Point. He was gonna let them come and take it over. But his plot was discovered. He was found out before he could turn it over and he snuck away. He slithered out of the American lines and then over across into the, the British encampment where he could be safe with a new loyalty. And when he got there, they promoted him. He was in charge again over British soldiers. And it, it didn't go well. It's not that he just betrayed and that was the end. One of the worst things is the Battle of Groton Heights, G-R-O-T-O-N, Groton Heights in Connecticut. His command over the British soldiers resulted in a conquering of the American platoon. The Americans surrendered, and under Arnold's leadership, they slaughtered the surrendering Americans, hands up, and they killed them all. It was a massacre led by the American. Can you imagine fighting alongside your band of brothers and then betraying them, going back, and they surrender, and you just put them to death ruthlessly? So it is today that the name Benedict Arnold is essentially synonymous with the idea of being a traitor. My guess is most of us in the room didn't know the history, but when you hear Benedict Arnold, you think traitor. His name's always said with a generous amount of scorn and disdain because everybody hates a traitor. That leads to our sermon text for this morning where Jesus is betrayed. We'll take the passage in two parts. First, verse 18 through 21, and then 22 through 30. The first part, Jesus is submitting, yet not conquered. Submitting, yet not conquered. So let's get, let's get some context. Look there in verse 18. He says there, I do not speak to all of you, or of all of you. Well, he's just been speaking. That If you have one of these red-letter Bibles, it's read immediately before this. This is right in the middle of continued speech. What's he been talking about? If you remember from last week, this is when Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. They're there at the Passover supper. He's just washed their feet. He's on his knees like a servant. He's got the towel around his waist. And then he stands up from serving them and starts to teach them. And he says, just like I served you, you serve each other. Slaves not greater than his master. Disciples not greater than his teacher. And if you know these things, you're blessed. You'll be blessed if you do them but not all of you. John, the writer, and we'll say the narrator, has mentioned in verse, sorry, the beginning of chapter 13, not verse, chapter 13, he's mentioned that the end is near. Jesus knew that it was time now for him to go back and be with the Father. So we know as readers, but the disciples, they didn't hear the narrator. Jesus hasn't mentioned anything in a, in, in a while about his hour having come. They've changed settings Totally. The end isn't on their mind immediately, but it's this text, starting in verse 18, where Jesus starts to steer the conversation in a sober direction. 
And he starts talking about how it's going to be when he's gone. Can you imagine being out to eat with your parents and everything's good and you're enjoying fellowship and then one of your parents looks at you and says, when I'm gone, I want you to take care of your sister. You say, when you're gone? What? That's what Jesus starts doing here. He starts talking about when he's gone, how it's going to be. This, is, this becomes a sober conversation. It'd be like a semi-truck heading down the highway at 100 miles an hour and just slamming on the brakes and everything comes to a screeching halt. There's a problem. So Jesus says, not everybody, not all of you. And then Jesus makes the rest of this statement in verse 18. It's a not this but that kind of statement. It's hard to see until you look at the text a little more closely. Not this but that. The text reads in verse 18, I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I said not this but that. It's a, there's a contrast between two things. On the one hand, Jesus knows those whom he's chosen. He knows them. He hasn't made any mistakes. And yet, somehow, one of the chosen is going to turn against him. That's what's meant by lift up his heel. It's an Old Testament Jewish way of saying turn against him and war against him. It's counterintuitive. The disciples are sitting there with their feet freshly wiped by the servant king with his working hands. They're in danger of making a mistake, a miscalculation, a misinterpretation, and Jesus knows it. Imagine what they would have been tempted to think. When, when the betrayer, when Judas shows his true colors, what would they be tempted to think? If they didn't know, if he didn't tell them in advance that it was coming and that he was leaving, they would think Jesus had made an error. I titled this section, Submitting, Not Conquered. They were at risk of thinking he'd been conquered. Jesus says, no, no, I know the ones that I've chosen. There's no mistake. We've already heard this in John 6, 64. Don't turn there, let me read it to you. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. He knew from the beginning that Judas would betray him. He didn't know that he would be betrayed. The text says he knew who it was that would betray him. There's no mistake. Jesus wants the disciples to know there's no mistake. You remember the hatred that the Americans must have had for Benedict Arnold, turning on them, slaughtering their surrenderers? Do you think the Americans would have chosen Benedict Arnold to serve as general if they knew beforehand what he would become? Not in a million years. They would never. But Jesus did. He knew in advance. He knew from the beginning. So just imagine the meals that they shared, the walks that they had, walking and talking. We don't know much of what happened with a lot of those conversations. We don't know hardly anything, if anything, of what Judas Iscariot would have said. But he was there. He had the money box. He wasn't a nobody in the background. He was respected enough to have the money box. For three years, the friend of the Lord Jesus, the close acquaintance of the Lord Jesus. Think of Jesus' patience. Think of his self-control, 
He never, ever let a single harsh word slip out in the moment. Total control of his mouth, total control of all of his actions. The Lord, strong and mighty, patient, even in the face of the worst possible evil. He knew that having a traitor in the inner circle was a part of God's plan, and he wanted the disciples to know it too. So he quotes Psalm 41, 9. I read it before. It reads, He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Let's make two observations about Psalm 41, 9. The first is that it's a Davidic psalm. It's a psalm of David. And one of the major storylines of the Bible is the parallel between the life of David and the Messiah, particularly because the Messiah would come from David's line. And so all of the contours, many of the contours, I should say, of David's life prefigure, they're a preview of the life of Christ when he would come, like the anointing as king, first David, then Jesus, or conquering all God's enemies, first David, then Jesus. The forever kingship of 2 Samuel 7, first David, promised to David, fulfilled in Jesus. Or Psalm 16, you will not abandon my soul to Hades. You will not allow my flesh to see decay, spoken by David, fulfilled in Jesus. It's a Davidic psalm. The close friend, the one with whom I share bread, will lift up his heel against me. First in David's life, now in Jesus. Second observation on that idea of a close friend. That's, as I said, what's meant by he who eats my bread. The idea is you share meals together. Wouldn't be some far-off business associate. Be somebody in the inner circle. So in David's life, what's the original context? We're not really sure. Perhaps, though, it has to do with Ahithophel, one of his closest counselors. And in that same season, his son Absalom defects and takes over the kingdom from his own father. You can't get much closer than a son betraying a father. He's betrayed from within the ranks, within the inner circle. Think of the evil of David's and now Jesus' betrayal. Jesus had been nothing but good to Judas. He had come to lay down his life like a lamb that was going to be slaughtered. And Judas flipped the biblical principle on its head and returned evil for good. It's an awful thing. And my guess is that some of you today in this room, maybe many, most, have been betrayed at some point in your life by some person that you trusted. You were betrayed. Maybe it was in some business deal and they took your money. Maybe your parents turned their back on you when you were a child or when you were an adult. You should have been able to trust them for nurture and help. And the people, humanly speaking, you should have been able to trust turned their back on you. They betrayed your trust. Maybe some other way, you've been abused. Maybe it was a friend or some social relationship. You heard them talking about you behind your back. You thought you were friends, but then you see this. They betrayed you and you feel so used, so ashamed, so dirty, so wrong, because it is so evil. 
That's where Jesus was. He knew it was coming, but it was a betrayal from the inner circle, and he said it had to be just like that. He had to be betrayed by a close friend, and it had to work. It wasn't a close call. Judas was going to succeed. He would successfully lead Jesus into the trapper's snare. Jesus would be seized this same night and put to death. And Jesus wants the disciples to know this is how it's gonna be. And he tells them why he wants them to know. Look at verse 19. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. I mentioned that the disciples were at risk of misunderstanding, as they often do in John's gospel, what's about to happen. They may have thought Jesus was ultimately defeated by this successful betrayal. Jesus had come for a purpose, and yet his purpose had been thwarted. He had been conquered, to use that word again, by a betrayal. When tragedy strikes in your life, Jesus knows before it comes. The disciples may have thought that Jesus was taken by surprise, hoodwinked. He tells them, no, it's going to be this way. When hard things happen in our own lives, and they happen all the time, We heard this morning of a death of a spouse and a death of a grandfather and there's all kinds of other things, diseases, pains, sorrows, disappointments, large and small. They come to everybody, relational wounds, all of it. In his wise providence, he knows about them all before they come. And just like he's preparing the disciples, I want you to know this will happen. When it does happen, don't make the mistake of believing that I've lost it, that I've made a mistake. No, no. When they happen, you need to understand, he told us in advance they would come. Suffering is going to come. And when it comes, you go to him and you say, you told me this would come. Help me to trust you in it. Be with me. Be close to me. I need your help. Maybe you're anxious about losing your salvation Maybe you're anxious that you'll fall away. We've had in this church quite a few people removed through the process that Jesus commanded us in excommunication. Those leave a mark on a congregation. They're supposed to leave a mark. It would be wrong if they didn't, but maybe you're anxious that that will be you. Maybe when you sin, you think, oh no, hope I won't end up there. Well, there's a right kind of sobriety that we're meant to receive from excommunication, but at the same time, consider the logic of what Jesus is saying to them. Watch the way he is keeping his disciples. He's keeping them. He knows they might understand And he tells them why he's telling them. I'm telling you in advance so your heart will be prepared so that when it happens, you will, what's the word? When it happens, you'll believe. 
He is working to make sure his disciples go on believing and do not fall away. There's something in his character, his protective shepherd heart that says, not my sheep. He's not going to let their faith suffer shipwreck. You can count on him to keep you. He'll shepherd you just like he shepherded them. Entrust your soul to him. He can keep you. So he's preparing the disciples to embrace this betrayal and death as God's doing. And in verse 20, he starts hinting at, alluding to their commission for what's gonna happen when he's gone. In in John's gospel, Jordan said a couple of weeks ago that Jesus is, I think somewhere around 45 times, said to be sent from God. He's sent from God. Sent, sent, sent. Makes sentences longer in order to say, he sent me, he sent me. But he really doesn't ever say that about his disciples, at least not with any clarity at all, until this text, that they too will be sent. But that's where Jesus goes here. Here's, Here's his logic. Jesus says, the Father sent me. When I get here, everybody who receives me is receiving the one who sent me. You send the ambassador, the ambassador has all the authority of the one who sent him. You reject the ambassador, you reject the sender. You accept the ambassador, you accept the sender. And Jesus says, it's the same now. I'm about to go. I won't be here much longer. And I'm about to send you. And you now will be my ambassadors. When you get there, if they accept you, they've accepted me. If they reject you, they've rejected me. I'm leaving. He's preparing them. These are parting instructions. And then look in verse 21. There's a transition there. There's a little phrase that begins verse 21. It says, when Jesus had said this, or maybe another translation would say, had said these things. There's a transition. After Jesus had said these things about a close friend betraying him, he's leaving, he's going down. It's on purpose, it's not an accident. He's submitting to God, not conquered. He's leaving, parting instructions for them. He's talking all about his own demise at the hands of a wicked man. And once he's said that, Once he's just told them these things, it says he was troubled, troubled in spirit. That wouldn't come as a surprise. If you're talking about your own demise, you get troubled in spirit. If you write out your last will and testament and who do you want your kids to go to and all this, it's not exactly uh, the lightest of conversations. Well, Jesus is at death's door talking about it, preparing his disciples. He's troubled in spirit. And for a few minutes, We need to turn our attention, we need to zoom in on that phrase, troubled in spirit. Think about the Lord Jesus and who he is. We heard a couple of weeks ago, he's truly God and truly man. First, the translations. They all say troubled, troubled in spirit, except the NET, which says Jesus was greatly distressed in spirit. So troubled and distressed. Other New Testament uses of the word. It's used for stirring up water. The man in, I think it's John 5, when he wants to get into this healing water, once it's stirred up, 
but he doesn't have anybody to put him in there. That's the word, stirring up water. It's not placid, still water. You can see a reflection in it's choppy, stirring, tumultuous water. It's also used of stirring up a crowd, not like you guys sitting quietly listening, an angry crowd. They're troubled, they're stirred up. That's the word. You can disturb a person. John 14, Jesus tells his disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled, disturbed within me. Old Testament uses. Pharaoh was troubled after this dream he had about the great big ears of corn swallowing up the little ones. He's bothered. He doesn't know what it is. He's not at rest in his inner man. Joseph's brothers, when they leave from being with Joseph and they look in Benjamin's sack and they find the money that they're not supposed to have and they know they're in for it now, they are not in good shape and they are troubled. When Solomon advised the people to split the baby, the actual mother of the baby considers that her son may be split in half and she's troubled. And Ahab, the king, was sullen and troubled when he wanted to get Naboth's vineyard and he thought he couldn't have it. He was just burning up with envy and desire inside because he couldn't have what he wanted and he is troubled. A dictionary, to stir up, to cause acute emotional distress or turbulence, to cause great mental distress. That's our word. Jesus is troubled in spirit. He is not in good shape. One commentator said, no doubt the disciples could see it on his face. He's at the table. It's the Last Supper. He's telling them that he's about to be betrayed. His own death is imminent. He's distressed. And he's troubled. He knows in that moment weakness as a sufferer. He's not a stoic. He's truly God and truly man. He's able to be affected by the evil things that fill up the world. He's not impervious to those things. He suffered. He felt it. Not in name only or in appearance only, but in reality. He felt the pain of betrayal, and he knew what it was to be stirred up in the inner man. The weight is heavy on him. Now, when you think of Jesus as Lord of all, does this sort of lordship enter your mind? It should. In last week's text, Jesus told the disciples that he was teacher and Lord as he washed their feet. They go together. It's not as though he wasn't the supreme Lord in these moments of suffering. He was Lord then. He's Lord now. He's in the hour of darkness insisting that he will submit to the Father's will. He'll carry out all of God's promises, even the ones that make you tremble down in your bones that are so hard to swallow, he'll fulfill them all. And there he sits, Lord of heaven and earth, with his disciples. Here's how it's going to be when I'm gone. We're almost there. Troubled. Distressed. What about Christians and emotions? What about you and emotions? They're not all bad. Jesus wouldn't have had them if they were. 
maybe you consider yourself somewhat of a stoic. You view emotions as a sign of weakness and something for people without self-control. You should seek to bring the pattern of your relationship with your emotions into conformity with those of the Lord Jesus. He's the pattern. He's the plumb line. Or maybe you believe, wrongly, mistakenly, God will help you, that God's sovereignty over all things implies you shouldn't feel the weight of trials in your life. If God is sovereign, I should just accept these things. Well, that won't fit. Paul, the apostle, Mr. Sovereignty Talk, says that if one of his brothers, his co-workers in the Lord, would have perished, Paul would have had sorrow upon sorrow, but God had mercy on me, and God saved his life. Paul would have had sorrow upon sorrow at the death of a friend. God's sovereignty does not mean we ought not feel deeply the sorrow and suffering that we experience in the world. But on, on the other end of the spectrum, maybe you're dominated by your emotions. Maybe you feel so acutely and you don't know what to do with emotions. Maybe it's like you're on a plane and your emotions are in the cockpit, the door is closed, you can't get in there, and they, you just go wherever they take you. You can't seem to get them under control. You live by them. Maybe you trust them too much. Either way, we ought to seek to bring our emotions into conformity with the pattern of the Lord Jesus. He was distressed in spirit and yet, despite feeling pressed on, he forged ahead in obedience to his Father's will. He's sitting at the table and now he's going to tell them as plainly as anyone can how things are going to be. He's going to shoot them straight. Look there in verse 21. Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. That phrase, truly, truly, I say to you, it's like saying, listen up, I'm about to tell you something really important. We don't talk like that in our day and age, truly, truly, I say to you, we don't hear that. It's the same thing as saying, hey, I need to tell you something. That's what he's doing. And he tells them, one of you will betray me. There's not a group of a thousand people. There are 12 disciples. One of you will betray me. It's not good odds. One of the 12 is going to betray the light of the world, the light of men, the creator of all, the good shepherd. One of them is going to betray him. It's a mic drop moment. Can you picture their face when he says that to them? He's never said it so explicitly. He told them earlier in John's gospel that one of you is a devil. That's what he told them. But it didn't make much of a dent on them, I don't think. You don't find any reflection of that. One of you is a devil, but now one of you will betray me. So they begin looking around. You see their bulging eyes and their raised eyebrows and their quick eye movements. Who is it? One of us? It says that they were worried and perplexed, some other translations, worried and perplexed, uncertain. They're at a loss. Hanging in the balance is eternal damnation. One of you. And there was one, it, the NASB says, reclining on Jesus' bosom. Man, that's strange language for us. 
The ESV puts it, I think, better, reclining at table at Jesus' side. He's at the place of honor. He's right by Jesus. He's got the seat right by him. And the text tells us that he's the one whom Jesus loved. Most agree. I think it's probably right. That's John the writer. He shows up a couple of times in this gospel. And there he sits right by Jesus. And Peter, not right by Jesus' side, gestures to John. I don't know how. It doesn't tell us. Just somehow he gestures to John. He says, figure it out. Who is it? Find out who it is. We got to know. We can't bear the tension of this moment. We have to know. Maybe he's crying when he says it. I don't know. They're not playing games. It's not fun. Somebody's eternal salvation or damnation hangs in the balance. And so John leans back against Jesus and I think probably quietly so that everybody else doesn't hear it, says, Lord, who is it? And Jesus, it says he answered, again, probably where no one else can hear, matching John's tone of voice, the one for whom I dip the morsel and give it to him. There's two reasons why I think, when I first read this text, it was very confusing to me. Because it's going to say in a minute, nobody understood why Judas left the room. And if they had all heard what Jesus says, whomever I dip the morsel and give it to him, if they had all heard that, it, there's no, no uh, reasonable way that they couldn't have known what was going on. But imagine if John leans back, he says to John quietly, who is it? Jesus says, the one for whom I dip the morsel and give it to him. That's the one. Nobody hears it except John. Then when Judas leaves, having been given the morsel, nobody knows what's going on. They don't understand. Also, the second reason is that the text says there, if you look in the verse, Jesus answered. He answered him. It doesn't say proclaimed or said it's a direct answer to John's question and if John leans back to Jesus's bosom his chest as close as you can get he may well not have been saying it out loud where everybody can hear exactly what's going on so Jesus says the one for whom I dip the morsel morsel means a piece of bread probably dip it in something the text doesn't tell us exactly what he dips it in maybe oil maybe something else we don't know for sure there are some guesses but he dips it And then he gives it to Judas. The text calls him Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. His full name, like he's etching his name into a stone epitaph forever. He's the betrayer. And he gives him the morsel. He identifies him. John saw it. John probably heard. John did hear. John also saw, probably understood what was going on. And the text tells us that Satan, Satan, entered into the heart of Judas Iscariot. That's from verse 2 of chapter 13. Satan entered into him. The devil put it in his heart. We don't talk about Satan in our day and age. It's not popular. We live in an increasingly secularizing society. The unambiguous testimony of the scriptures is that Satan is real and he is acting and that he had a great deal to do with this betrayal. He's called elsewhere the prince of the power of the air. All people are born under his sovereign control. You're slaves to him. Satan entered into Judas and Jesus tells him, what you do, do quickly. 
What you do, do quickly. It's like saying, you get out of here now. Don't sit there a minute longer with that evil plan in your black heart. Get on with it. Verse 28 and 29 are parenthetical. We'll come back to them. And Judas takes the morsel. He leaves. He leaves Jesus and the 11 disciples. He's gone. The disciples are left eating the Passover meal with Jesus in the upper room. And the text tells us the last phrase, it was night. And I want you to see the picture of the Lord Jesus held out to us in what just happened. Hebrews 2.10 calls Jesus the captain of salvation. Consider the scenery. It's night. It's right before the cross. The power of darkness belongs to the devil. There's blindness in the disciples. They don't know what's going on. The work of the devil is in Judas's heart. The utter evil of betrayal is being carried out looking so successful he's under the weight of the cross and the anger of God and in it all Jesus reigns he made no missteps he never faltered he never went the wrong way every single word every single action and statement that he gave in that moment was exactly what God gave him to do for the salvation of his people he's captain of salvation he's so trustworthy We screw it up all the time. He never, ever falters. He's not changed a bit in the last 2,000 years. The same way that he was captain of salvation at the Last Supper is the way he's captain of salvation in the affairs of your everyday life. He's the captain of salvation. I mentioned that I believe verse 28 and 29 are parenthetical. A couple of translations actually put those two verses in parentheses. They're a brief break, an editorial comment from the unfolding narrative. And they tell us there what I've already alluded to or mentioned that the disciples just don't get it. They don't understand. He tells us what the disciples thought. They knew that Judas had the money box. And they thought, well, given that he has the money box, this what you do, do quickly, maybe that means go buy some supplies that we need. He's got the money. He's the treasurer, right? Go buy some supplies that we need for the feast or maybe give something for the poor. Something related to the money box. That's his usual function. It's what he normally does. But nobody thought Jesus was sending away the rat, letting him go without apprehending him. When George Washington and the rest of the Continental Army found out about Benedict Arnold's betrayal, he snuck away to British lines. You better believe if they had had the chance to apprehend him, they would have done it. Jesus let Judas walk. He submitted to his evil and conniving plan. But the disciples were clueless. And the cluelessness of the disciples and of humanity at large is ubiquitous in John's gospel. It's everywhere. Earlier in chapter 12, John tells us that they didn't understand anything about when Jesus entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey until after the resurrection. Then they remembered. The same thing happens earlier. I think it's chapter 2 when Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And everyone thinks he's talking about the brick and mortar. And only after the resurrection do they then remember, they realize he's talking about the temple of his body. They don't get it. 
In the prologue or the introduction to John's gospel, the darkness cannot reckon with the light that comes. They're blind. Unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Blindness, inability to see or know what is plainly in front of your face is a major theme of John's gospel. And if you're here with us today and you're not yet a Christian, you might think that kind of talk is just crazy talk. It's just absurd. But consider an example that you know or are familiar with, at least in part, when people are born colorblind. Imagine if you had been born colorblind, totally unaware that you were seeing differently than anybody else, never diagnosed. You thought you could see everything there was to see, and you couldn't. Imagine all the conversations you might have had with friends and family as you're looking at two things, and they're saying, no, those are different colors, and you're like, what are you talking about? You get mad at them, maybe you're irritated. You're crazy. Those are the same thing. You know what you see is true, but it's not. Friends, if you're visiting with us today, I would guess you've had conversations like this with other people who are in your your family or maybe friends, and they tell you how they love the Lord. How's this for a mystifying phrase if you're not yet a Christian? I saw his glory. You say, what? It's impossible. It's ridiculous. Just wishful dreaming. But have you ever considered that something may be wrong with your sight? It might be your vision, like the colorblind, colorblind person finally coming to grips with the fact that everybody else was right and I actually can't see what is truly there. Have you considered that maybe that is what's going on in your own heart and with your own eyes? The testimony of John's gospel is that Jesus is the Son of God. He did submit to all the details, even the nitty-gritty ones of the Father's design for his life, including wickedness that came from betrayal and suffering on the cross for our sins in our place, and John makes it clear that he rose from the dead. That's the most unbelievable thing that you could possibly come into contact with. He rose from the dead on the third day as the forever king of heaven and earth, and he'll return to judge the living and the dead. The text tells us elsewhere that every eye will see him. Nobody will be colorblind when Jesus comes back. Everybody will see him. The disciples so often don't get it. They don't understand that Judas is the betrayer. They don't understand the way that the Old Testament points to Jesus. They don't get all of that. They're blind. But what about us? What about you? If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you should ask God if you're blind. Ask him why you can't see what other people talk about and they tell you that they can see. Ask them to help you see what God sees. Ask God to help you see what he sees. Ask him to lift your head, lift your head, pardon me, and look to the betrayed and crucified and risen Lord Jesus. Well, this is where John, the writer, leaves us for today. The traitor has been sent out. He's been released. Jesus let him go to do his dirty and bloody work. Jesus has showed himself to the disciples as captain of salvation choosing all his disciples without mistake, submitting to the Father's plan that even his close friend will betray him to death. He's worked hard to preserve the disciples' faith, 
to make sure that when the time comes that it's all carried out, they believe that he is the great I am, the Messiah, the Son of God. He submitted to betrayal, wasn't conquered by it, he submitted to it. And this is the way that Jesus has been for all of God's people for all time. He'll be just this way for you today, the rest of Sunday, tomorrow, and Tuesday, and the rest of the week, and the rest of your life, if you'll entrust yourself to him. He'll keep all his people. He'll preserve your faith. He he forged courageously into the darkness and through the darkness for our salvation. Look to Christ. He's risen from the dead now. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God, interceding, that means praying for you. He's the captain of your salvation. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that even in all of our frailty, all our weakness, and yes, even our sin, Jesus remains Lord. Even in the midst of trial, even in the midst of tragedy, even in the midst of sorrow, Lord, you saw it all before. And you prepared your disciples to continue to believe that you are the Son of God, the Messiah, the captain of our salvation. We pray now that you would keep us all. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.